0: There's a deadly wave coming. Our hospitals are clearing the wards. Our government has announced unprecedented measures to protect the country from coronavirus. But we know, all of us, we know that the peak of infections is still on its way. Two weeks ago, the UK went into a lockdown. Like many countries around the world, we stopped going outside to protect our health service and to protect the most vulnerable people around us. So now home is at the heart of everything. And that's why there's another deadly wave on its way too. One that is as yet out of sight, but it's one that I've been thinking about a lot. Because let me say this straight up, I'm lucky. For me, home is a place of safety. And sure, like everyone, like many of you, I'm struggling with the isolation. I'm getting a bit fatigued by video calls, and I'm definitely, definitely struggling to stay fit. I miss swimming. But that's it. That's about as much as I can moan about right now. But there are other women who are facing something much, much more dangerous. Because the second deadly wave that I'm thinking of is already starting to hit, For many women, this lockdown means being stuck inside homes that are places of violence and abuse, where home is actually the most dangerous place to be. I'm Basha Cummings, and welcome to this week's Tortoise Podcast. This week, we're telling the story of a horrible and hidden consequence of the lockdown. The story of how women are now weighing up the risks of a potentially deadly virus, and seeking safety, and we're meeting the frontline workers who are trying to save lives in a different way. Last year, domestic abuse rose in the UK by 24%. That means that there was an incident, on average, every minute. And now, things are getting even worse. Since the lockdown, in a matter of just days, there have been nine murders across the UK linked to domestic violence. Already this week, a man has been charged with the murder of his wife. The homicide took place during isolation in a place called Gwent in Wales. There, the police had already been pretty vocal about a rise in domestic abuse. When you look at this time last year, over the last two weeks we are receiving around 130 calls less in respect of domestic abuse and this is a real concern for us. We'd want to be in a position whereby members of our communities who are in abusive relationships feel confident to call us and given the fact that we are currently in a position where the majority of communities are staying at home with their families, we would expect this number to increase. And that hasn't been the case. The really scary thing is a lot of this is still hidden. So some charities are reporting falls in reports of domestic abuse. This is because they suspect women are just not able to make a call or to seek help. They're literally trapped. Elsewhere, the phones are ringing off the hook. The National Domestic Abuse Helpline has reportedly seen a 65% increase in calls just over the last weekend. The organisation Safe Lives, which runs an online platform, said that it had seen a 15% increase in traffic and other web chat services say that they're also seeing higher demand. And of course this isn't limited to the UK, in China, police reports have revealed that domestic violence has tripled during the epidemic. And in France, they've seen an increase of around a third in reports of domestic abuse. In Spain, the number of people accessing the government's domestic abuse digital services has almost trebled. So I wanted to speak to someone on the front line, someone who is trying to make sense of how the lockdown is impacting vulnerable women. Andrea West runs Berkshire Women's Aid in the southeast of England. In her refuges, she homes women who are escaping abusive partners all the time.
2: We have a drop-in uh, service where women often turn up with their belongings in a carrier bag. But we had one family who came to that drop-in who told us that they... Mum told us that her and her two children were sleeping on the floor... Dad had sold their beds and they were sleeping on the floor. And we said, but we can get you beds. We can work with a local charity to get you beds. And she said, no, she didn't want beds because it put them at risk and he would sell them again. And actually, there would be a point in the very near future where she'd want to come into refuge. So she just needed something to, to get the kids off the floor. So thanks to some really... Great supporters of ours we got them some new air mattresses and they were able to do that before we use those before they come into refuge so those children weren't sleeping on the floor they came into refuge just before Christmas and one of my refuge workers was working with a little girl to decorate the Christmas tree in refuge and the little girl turned to her and said this is the best Christmas ever and my refuge worker said to me, how can it be their best Christmas ever? They're in a shared house. She's away from her friend. She hasn't been, she doesn't know anyone, you know, massive upheaval. Uh, but she said to that little girl, why, why is this your best Christmas ever? What what What, what makes it so, so, so good for you? And she said, well, daddy doesn't let us have Christmas. And well, Santa know where we are. And the refuge worker said to her, yeah. He absolutely will. And, and you know, you'll have lots of presents. And we knew that she would because my office basically was full of presents that everybody had donated for this, for this, and all the other families that we work with. We take it for granted sometimes the safety and the security of, of the world that we all live in. But when you hear a little girl talking, a little girl that's been sleeping on the floor because of, of her family situation and who sees a, a refuge... Which is so scary and so unknown for a little girl or a little boy when that's their best Christmas ever. It, it's really it really tells the story for us.
0: Just to sort of take us back before we start talking about the present and what we are facing and what many women um, are going to be facing in this lockdown. Can you just sort of describe to me how it was that you first started working within a refuge and and what was what was the experience like of
2: stepping into one for the first time? I don't think you can fully comprehend uh, what a refuge is like. It is absolutely a safe place for someone. Uh, and some of the women that we work with and the children turn up with what they're standing in, basically, or what all their belongings in a black, in a, a black plastic or a carrier bag. Um, And the fear that comes with them um, is really palpable. But for the first time, and we hear this from many women, this is the first time they feel safe. Uh, And when you and I look at it, and if we aren't survivors of domestic abuse, and we look at it and we think, gosh, you're in a shared house. uh, You know, you might be sharing a bathroom. You're certainly probably sharing a kitchen. You and your family are all in one room. Yet you're incredibly grateful for this space because it's the first time you know that your children are safe and the first time that you're able to close your eyes and and not worry about what's going to happen. That's what refuge is about. But it isn't just about a safe roof over your head. It's about giving you space to rebuild, to really rebuild a life where you haven't got that fear, to really rebuild a life for your children um, in terms of their school, in terms of their friends, in terms of your ability maybe to get a job or to access education or to move out of area and get um, a new housing, it really gives people that space um, that they haven't had to to rebuild with support. And that's what our refuge workers do. They support people to, to move on and to rebuild.
0: How, how does a refuge normally operate? Because for a lot of people... You know, hopefully they will never have to use one or or experience what they're like. But, but could you describe what it's like day to day?
2: It's a house, so people go to work, people, uh, children go to school. It's 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 a shared house. Um, some some domestic abuse organisations might have self-contained flats and things. Ours ours are all shared houses. People people do their daily life in the way that anybody else would do their daily life, but they're doing it from a secret address from a protected address and then our refuge workers are key workers for each of those families each of those women so they're working with them on things that you and I maybe take for granted like uh, health visitors attending or to see the children or accessing school places and then there's also a big piece of our work which is around women with no recourse to public funds so those women who may have come into the country on a, on a visa with their husband or partner, they then flee because of abuse, which means they don't have any money at all for food or for accommodation. So our refuge workers would work with them to access public funds because of their situation, because of the domestic abuse.
0: So it's a lot of you know face to face contact it's a lot of direct support so mm. how how are women and children coping now in the current lockdown where i'm assuming that so much of that contact is now unavailable
2: it's a huge challenge for the women but also for our staff who want to provide that one to one face contact and it's not just about the contact it's also about the physical safety of those refugees. You know, people have to visit them to do all their health and safety checks, their fire checks, all of those sorts of things to make sure that they're safe places to live. We are working remotely, um, but we do have staff going in once a week to do those checks and to be able to speak at a distance with with women. But we that creates real barriers to empathy and to be able to really support those women properly. I think it also creates challenges not having someone on site to deal with the small niggles that, that obviously happen when people are in shared housing, things that we would normally be able to to deal with immediately, you know, children uh, getting into fights with each other or really easy questions to ask that you would expect in any shared housing. We're not able to stay on top of that. And and it's a really stressful time for those women. And. Um-
0: What was the trend for referrals to refuges like before the coronavirus lockdown? What was was the sort of general trend that you were
2: seeing? So some of our refuges are always full. It's literally one family leaves and immediately another one is is there at the doorstep to to come in. Some have a bit more of an ability to, to have space. But yesterday I had eight referrals into refuge, which is just unprecedented. Normally we might have one or two a day, but I had eight in one day. And that, we have four rooms. So that's four other families that we then have to look. We don't turn them away, obviously. We're part of a wider network of refugees, And we work with whoever we can to try and find them a place elsewhere. But that place may not be within an area that they know. Um, It may mean children leaving school, although obviously at the minute they're not at school, but it Aiming them leaving any support networks that they have, but to have eight referrals in one day is is a massive increase on on what we would have seen before.
0: Is there a story that you can tell already of a of a woman and her children, or or on her own, who has managed to escape within the lockdown?
2: Honestly, no, because we're so much in the midst of it that it's really hard to step back at the moment to look at that. We're so flat out. Just meeting that need, you know, meeting those eight referrals yesterday and trying to trying to do that. the The hardest thing for my staff every day is not being able to accommodate those people, is not being able to have the space to do it, is listening to all of those heartbreaking stories of people who need somewhere. We had one woman in court yesterday whose partner was about to be bailed. And needed somewhere to go, and unfortunately, she was number five on the list, and we we couldn't offer her a room.
0: What 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 is what is the the push for these women to be contacting Women's Aid and refuges?
2: It's a really interesting question because for the last week, it's been quite quiet. And everyone within this field has been thinking this is a calm before a storm. This is a way of people looking for ways to contact us. Because if you're at home 24 hours a day, seven days a week with your abuser, how do you make that call? How do you pack that bag? How do you make sure that your documents and and a little bit of money is squirreled away so that you can actually flee? That's so much harder when you're not leaving the house to go and do your shopping or go to work or the children go to school, so we were we were thinking that quietness was probably going to erupt at some point, and that 's what it feels like is happening now and I had a call this morning from one of my one of my workers who said actually. She said what this has done is has given the women that she speaks to, the women that she's a key worker for in the community, it's actually given them the push to flee. It's given them the opportunity to do that. But they need to be able to be supported to do that. And all the messages that we are putting out there about you don't have to choose between abuse and COVID-19. You don't have to stay. The police are there to support you. The police will go in if needed. All of those messages seem to be getting through now. And women seem to be fleeing.
0: That's definitely the message, which is the lockdown does not mean that you have to stay and endure a dangerous or abusive
2: situation. Exactly. And we haven't, yeah, I haven't even really talked about the children within that. I was I was noticing the other day looking at sort of local Facebook sites and and social media pages about people complaining that there were groups of children wandering about the place and and obviously breaking the the government guidelines which are critical and we know why they're critical to protect our our NHS and services but we don't know how many of those children are are doing that because they can't be at home because they can't be in abusive homes and that is that is certainly an issue at the minute as well for those children who were school and, and college for young people would have been their escape every day and they don't have that either. So what,
0: if anything, at this moment in time could the government do to help on this? They obviously have announced unprecedented financial measures to try and protect the economy and to protect workers. What would you like to see them do to protect women in vulnerable situations?
2: Having that space to flee is really important, and that is under threat. I don't have the staff to be able to um, support those women. As I said, it isn't just a room, it isn't just a safe space to put someone in. It's not just a matter of handing someone a key and saying, there you go, if you go into refuge. Those women need that support whilst they're there. So it's about seeing that joined up service. We get to the stage where we even put people up in camp beds and rooms because we know that they need that space. It's not ideal, but it's better than going back to an abuser or being on the street. Do you expect to be putting up a lot of camp beds in the coming weeks? Very sadly yes we do and that's not a life for um, women on their own never mind women with children to be in a living room in a camp bed.
0: Andrea thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us I know you must be incredibly busy and I know this must be a very stressful time but we really appreciate you making time to tell us about what you're all
2: going through. And and thank you for for publicising this. It's really important.
0: Every year, the Labour politician and MP for Birmingham Yardley, Jess Phillips, stands up in the House of Commons and reads a list of the women who have been murdered by men that year. Next time, I wonder how much longer her list might be.
4: Lalal Kamara, Alice Morrow, Rachel Evans, Alison McKenzie, Jeanette Dunbervand, Barbara Haywood, Paula Meadows, Anna Reed, Sarah Fuller, Megan Newton, Leah Frey, Simon Riaz,
0: Jess has, perhaps unsurprisingly, been one of the first voices to raise concerns about domestic abuse in this lockdown. And she's been working with hotels and hostels to find ways to help women where normal avenues may now be shut off because of coronavirus. I spoke to her.
4: I'm deeply worried about people not feeling that they know where to go if they think something bad's happening to their neighbour. I'm worried that people can't be free for even a minute to make a call to a a centre and that women are getting the message that they've got to stay at home no matter what and that no matter what message includes domestic abuse, even though the Home Secretary has latterly come out and said otherwise. I still think that that message, the stay at home message is stronger than that escape message.
0: And and what is it about about a lockdown that that makes it so problematic for women who are in abusive relationships? I mean, it might sound obvious, but but can you just sort of spell out why from your you know, from your work and with your expertise why this is such a dangerous situation?
4: Well, for lots of women, work is a safe haven like for children in abusive situations school is a safe haven and so in you know overnight we eliminated the respite of women and children already living in existing abusive households you know it is only in the most severe cases where people would already have been as isolated as they are now. And you do see those cases of domestic abuse where people are literally imprisoned within their own homes. However, up until the lockdown situation, there was always opportunity for for victims to be out in the community speaking to people. The kids were being watched over in school, so any sort of dangerous risk or pitch points could have been being picked up we have basically taken away almost every single opportunity for escape and opportunity for somebody to ask the right question of a woman or to be there to answer the right question. You know, 90% of that just went away overnight. And that is a real, real concern.
0: You've you've talked about, you know, using hotels to house victims. Has Has there been any movement on that?
4: And you know what, I have been filled with absolute, you know, sort of humbling pride in the people in our country uh, this morning. Because almost every single, you know, big sort of accommodation provider, also, uh, you know, the people running the Youth Hostelling Association, they are doing so much already to house key workers, to try and stop bed blocking happening in hospitals. And they all just sort of lots and lots of them came back and were like, how can we help? Let's see how this is going to work. What I'm really hoping with that is, is that if we increase the number of bed spaces available, as refuge accommodation, that when police are being called out, firstly, we can do an enormous media campaign and uh, public health campaign to say, please, there there will be somewhere for you to go if you come forward, because at the moment we cannot say that. There wouldn't necessarily be somewhere to go. And then secondly, we will be able uh, to get police referral systems, because obviously the courts and things are shut at the moment, but the police can then say, we have these beds come to us now um, in this circumstance. Now, you know, if we manage this in a crisis, it'd be better than any system we ever had before the crisis.
0: Fundamentally, Jess, is, is what you're worried about, I mean, you, you're so well known for standing up in the House of Commons every year on International Women's Day and reading a list of names of women who have been killed by their partners. Are you, are you fundamentally worried that this time next year, your list will be much, much longer than usual?
4: I'm afraid to say I have absolutely no doubt that it will be. I mean, unfortunately, as the trends over the last few years means it, it increases anyway. Um, but I have, I have very little doubt at the moment that this period will, you know, whether it's three months, six months, three weeks, that this will be a spike in murder Um, and what also really worries me I don't think coronavirus doesn't cause domestic abuse and I I don't think I think it's sort of dangerous to say that that we might just hear it more we might notice it more because we're in our homes but there there will be a number of uh, victims throughout this period where it will be the first time it happens to them and it this isn't just those who are currently living with it panicking about how they're going to be walking on eggshells and what they've got to do to try and protect themselves this is also where in the lockdown it may be the very first time that that control might ramp up and that is a real worry.
0: Jess thanks so much that's really insightful.
4: It's totally my pleasure.
0: Speaking to Andrea and Jess leaves me with a pretty grim picture. But like with the coronavirus itself, there are things that each of us, that all of us can do to help protect women who are facing abuse at this time. You could support Women's Aid, a charity providing life-saving services to women. You could also support Refuge, which runs the National Abuse Helpline. And of course, if you're scared for your own safety, you can call 0808 2000 247. As ever, thanks for listening. And if you like this podcast and you'd like to take part in more of what we do at Tortoise, you can download our app and get a 30-day free trial. We publish investigations, long reads... And throughout this incredibly uncertain time for all of us, we're going to be cutting through the noise and bringing you only the stories that matter most. See you next week.
2: Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure?
3: Want to
4: know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts.
2: Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones.
4: And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez.
2: Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.